your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. The triangle set to the top of the pattern. Now Spielman in motion to the near side. Rolling right is McCaffrey. Throws it toward the end zone. Wide open is Noah. Makes a catch. And it is a touchdown. Nebraska. Now let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Late on the eve of the National Signing Day, which is going to be a big yawner. Right? Doesn't even feel like it. I mean, Nebraska might sign one tomorrow. The young defensive lineman that eight, count them eight, coaches flew out to see him over the weekend. Did you see the picture of those guys? Overwhelming almost. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, he's a defensive lineman, uh, Togaya. I think it's Togaya. Uh, and you had a Greg Austin was there. I think Mario was there. I mean, a bunch of offensive coaches that were out there as well. Uh, to see him. He might sign it with Nebraska tomorrow, but that really is it. There's no press conference tomorrow with the head football coach. We're hoping to be able to get an interview with Coach Frost tomorrow night for Sports Sunday. But you talk about anticlimactic. I mean, it's all now about December, and it's really crazy because there's so much going on, Ben, with college football in the month of December. You have conference championship games, bowl assignments, teams are getting ready for bowl games. Athletes are getting finishing up a semester. You've got coaching moves going on, the coaching carousel. And now we've really thrown almost the entire recruiting period into December. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I definitely didn't expect the numbers to be this drastic and, and just to continue to go up. Um, there's always going to be a need for tomorrow, though, just with, you know, other issues that, yeah. that may arise. Um uh, you know, to, to delay the processes of, of some of some kids, but um, it's it's dramatic the amount of percentage of of high school athletes that sign in that December period. I, I think it's great, though. I think I it, it certainly helps schools in the Big Ten. I definitely think it helps a school like Nebraska. Um, and you're starting to see why. You know, top 15 ranked class. There's you don't have these late steals, these late flips. Um, I mean, you still see late decommitments, but um, you you're, you know you don't have you don't have as much of the dramatics, um, you know, with coaching changes and then all the other stuff that that leads into guys wanting to change their minds and change their decisions. So I think it's great overall. I I still think you know there's probably still <clears throat> excuse me some still room to grow with uh, letting kids sign whenever they want, but this is definitely a step in the right direction. I, I, I love it for the student athlete. I think it's really good for them. And if it's good for them, then I'm 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 good with that. So but it certainly has changed it. Just think back to past years, Ben. We would be doing a sports alley on this night, a Tuesday in February. So excited about tomorrow. But tomorrow's gonna be kind of a yawner, really. Nebraska again may sign one. Uh, but, again, no press conference plan. We do hope to have the head coach as part of the program tomorrow night. Lots to talk about. We've not sat down and chatted with him since the December signing date of December the 18th. So it's been nearly two months since we've had him, hoping to have him on the program tomorrow night. Here is what we have for tonight's show. Chris Hetty of the Omaha World-Herald will join us. He covers Husker basketball. We'll get his take about where this team is in the midst of a seven-game skid. Where are they in year one under Fred Hoiberg? He's also written a profile piece about one of Bill Moose's new hires, and that's John Johnson, 
who has really over has taken he's overseeing men's basketball, which is obviously a huge sport on anybody's campus. Uh, we'll see what he learned about John Johnson, the, the the gentleman that Bill Moose did hire over the summer months. We'll talk to Chris coming up here in a couple of minutes. Hour right, number two, it's our women's basketball show for the week. Amy Williams in studio. The Huskers in a tough stretch. They've lost their last three games in which they led in every single one of them. Um, so it's a tough stretch right now for the Husker women. They head to Iowa City to play the Hawkeyes on Thursday. Uh, so Coach Williams in studio during hour number two. Top 10 Tuesday. We haven't had one of these in a little while. We've had a lot of basketball games on Tuesday nights. And with the Super Bowl now behind us, we thought we would go through the professional sports ranks and talk about the top 10 athletes that don't have a championship ring to their name yet. There's a lot of them out there, a lot of great athletes. Just give me a little precursor. Was it easy to put this list together? Did you struggle with it? Not really. I Maybe coming up with you know the fillers, but I already had six or seven guys in mind just because they're great people, great dudes, um, and, and got stuck in places that never really warranted them right. or maybe got one or two shots at it. And, and that's it. Um, and now a lot of the guys on my list are are to the point in their careers where it's probably not going to happen. I was and I did keep it athletes that are still competing. Yes. You, I did you, too. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little heavy baseball. I will tip that off you or no. I'm pretty balanced. I think I have. I don't have the, my list in front of me. It's in my office. I want to say I have um, three baseball. I know I have at least three NFL. I think I have three NBA and one hockey. Okay. All right. I'm a little heavy. Little My scale's tilting a little bit more toward baseball players. But we'll have some fun with that coming up in hour number three. And also Adam Rittenberg of ESPN.com is going to join us to talk about the Michigan State situation. So let's launch into that, Ben. I mean, that, that news broke mid-afternoon today that Mark D'Antonio, after 13 seasons as the head coach of the Michigan State Spartans, is stepping away as their coach. Odd timing. I think a lot of us felt like during the fall that this was going to be the end of the Antonio era at Michigan State. Their athletic director came out in mid-November and said, nope, he's our guy. We're going forward with him. We're going to stick with him. So he coached their team in the bowl game. They had a very average season in East Lansing for what he has built that program up to be. But he said that he knew this day would come, that he just felt like every February is when he kind of resets the program. And that as he studied that, as he evaluated where it was, where he was, that it was time for him to, to push back and hand the baton off to somebody else in East Lansing. I think he has done an amazing job there since we've joined the Big Ten. Their appearances, multiple appearances, been in the Big Ten championship game. They've won a conference title. They made a college football playoff appearance. It was not a good one. They got blasted by Alabama in a Cotton Bowl a few years ago, but they made the playoff. Um, he, he, he will go down in history as one of the best Michigan State head coaches of all time, but he's leaving here on the, on the eve of a signing period. And Michigan State's probably a lot like Nebraska. There's not going to be a lot of activity for him tomorrow. But the timing does seem a little odd. Yeah, but I think the lawsuit that, that he's facing and the university's for facing with, the, with former staffer is, is, is interesting in this role. You know, with that news coming out today, 
Um, you know, you wonder, you wonder what type of impact that had on his decision. You know, Austin told you to off the top about, um, you know, the, the bonus money that he got over $4 million. You know, this, this is just another thing that I don't know that he could withstand. I don't know that he could, he could hold up with another big thing put, put in front of him. And, and some of it, some of it wasn't his fault. You know, I think the, the whole Michigan state scandal, um, you know, with the, you know, with the abuse, um, not a lot of that was his fault, but I think also at the same time, you know, his tenure really started in a tailspin after that team made the playoff and, and coach Narduzzi left. And I don't know that that team ever, ever found itself. You thought maybe it did a couple years ago when they bounced back and had a nice season, but um, they started doing things so uncharacteristic of Michigan state that, that, that put them on the map. You know, they, they had a very specific type recruit that they were going for. They seemed to go away from that. The character of, of kids that they brought in wasn't the best. The, we've, we heard firsthand how toxic that locker room was and how much the players didn't like or respect each other or the coaches. So they kicked a lot of those kids off the team. Um, you know, they, they thought that they cut all the cancer out. Then the whole Joe Bocce stuff, you know, kind of – surfaced um with you know one of their leaders and and some comments that he made um that that offended some racist comments that you know kind of separated some people on the team and you know he kind of got over that suspension then he got suspended again with the steroids you know they're just there always seemed to be something some black eye on the program of Michigan State um and then I think we all kind of expected the face plant again this year after the the reshuffling of the staff you know where you know, it was basically wheel a position coach where those guys walked in, they spun the roulette wheel, and okay, you got wide receivers, you got DN, you know, you got the secondary. That's musical chairs. That's basically what it was. Yeah. And, and and anybody in their right mind could have looked at that situation and go, this is not going to work. And then, you know, the lawsuit with the details on that still coming out about, you know, a former staffer who was um, alleging that, star recruits parents were would be guaranteed employment um you know kind of the under the table stuff that that wouldn't necessarily show up in just a bank account you know like like we've seen so many times in in college recruiting you know with that coming out of course d'antonio denies any participation in that uh th there's just too much there's too much happening and not enough happening on the football field for this to be worth it anymore and and I think, you know, there is so much that he wasn't expecting to deal with that he's now having to deal with that the timing, I think, makes sense that he finally just had enough. Um, I, I don't I don't buy necessarily that it's just to spend more time with family. I think there's a lot more to this situation than that, whether he's guilty of this stuff or not. Um, I don't know, but I think it does weigh into having to deal with this every single day and, and having to address the team and having to, you know, convince these new recruits that you're a clean program I don't know that it, he thinks it's worth the time and energy anymore and and probably hearing a lot of pressure from boosters and everybody else do you think he picked his exit time or was this charted out over the last month? I don't know because it's to me these situations are really really hard to find the actual truth um typically my stance on this until you know all the details come out is I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle um, you know, do I think that, you know, he's guilty of all this stuff? I'm not sure of it. Do I think he's 
um, you know, rinsed his hands clean of everything? No, I don't, I don't buy that either. I think there's probably a little bit of both happening. Whether it actually happened, it was suggested, it was one kid, it was five kids, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the details of it. But what does Curtis Blackwell have to gain by now coming out and, and accusing him of this? You know, that doesn't make any sense. So, um, you know, I think, I think the, the decision, the time that it happened was calculated. And, you know, I think it, should, it, it is time to just move on. It's time for this to just be done. And, you know, you're getting passed up by, by teams in your own division and, and that's not okay at a place like East Lansing. He did have a clause in his contract that if he was still employed as Michigan State's head football coach on January the 15th, that a $4.3 million bonus kicked in. Well, we're past that. Yep. So that bonus kicked in, and now he leaves. I really don't believe in coincidences. I think that probably this has, was set up as an orchestrated thing for him to exit out. The lawsuit... I don't know. We got one going on in Penn State, too, that it popped out about two, three weeks ago. I, I think that may just kind of be the flavor of the month right now that kids are going to start doing this. Well, Penn State kid did it, so we should do it at Michigan State. And, heck, maybe it'll be Nebraska next week with one of these type of things. So I don't know if, if that had to do with it. I just wonder if this thing was plotted back in October or November to say, let's get you past that, let that thing kick in, and then you gracefully bow out where we can just say – it's your decision to do this, and we move on. But where does Michigan State move on? Do they just promote from within? A lot of people are throwing the name Luke Fickle out there, who's the head coach of Cincinnati, who's on Nebraska's schedule next fall and has had a terrific couple-of-year run there in the AAC. They're a ranked team. They'll probably come into Lincoln and be favored next year. Fickle, and that's why Adam's going to come on in hour three to give us some light on that, but Luke Fickle looks like a guy who's ready to be a head coach in the Big Ten Conference to me. Well, yeah, and I think there's another name that I threw out in Pat Narduzzi that should at least be sure. be given a look. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's built a pretty good run of, of success where he's been, and you know, some of the best memories that Michigan State fans are going to have with D'Antonio are going to be with Pat Narduzzi kind of yeah. being his head guy. But you know, those seem to be the two obvious names right now. Um, it, yeah, I mean. I, the fallout from the from all this stuff, um, you knew it was going to affect them eventually. In the, you know, in the new lawsuit and you know the the bonus, the the four point three million dollars that he was given on his contract. I think it's all kind of fitting together, and you know I can only imagine how frustrated Michigan State fans are right now with everything that's happening and just trying to bring somebody in that can get this thing back on the tracks because right now it's a runaway train. It is. It is in a division. It's. Obviously, very difficult, and particularly with the rise of Indiana football, which Tom Allen's done. That's what I mean. Is you've got, you know, Penn State. You thought they would take a step back. They've re-jumped Michigan State by a large margin. Obviously, Ohio State right there. Michigan, you know, has proven you know they can hang around. And you know, I'm not going to say Maryland and Rutgers are there, but you know, Rutgers made a new hire. Coach Loxley's bringing in talent. Like, if you're staying status quo, there are other programs that are at least putting in the effort to pass you. Will they actually do it? Most of them probably not, but they're at least trying. And delighted to be welcomed on board the program now by Chris Hetty of the Omaha World Herald. Good evening, Chris. How are you doing? Did you enjoy the Super Bowl by chance on Sunday? I enjoyed the Super Bowl quite a lot, uh, more than most sporting events that I've ever watched. Did, did you enjoy the Super Bowl? I am a big Chiefs fan. Grew up in Kansas City, so absolutely. I've waited a long, long time for that. It was a weird game, Chris. I, it was like... For three and a half quarters, San Francisco was a better team. And yet, when it, all, when it all ended, the Chiefs had won it. I was My head was spinning at the end of that thing. 
Yeah, I know. It was one of those things, too. I, I started getting flashbacks of earlier in the year where, I mean, obviously in the playoffs there were times when the Chiefs came back, but I was thinking of, I think it was at Oakland, like week one, like week two or three maybe, that the Chiefs scored like 21 or 24 points yep. in the second quarter. And so when that was happening in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl, I started thinking like, well, maybe they actually have it in them. Um, I will say at one point I was watching it with my brother, and at one point um, he, they have an infant child, and, and he was like, I'm just going to go bathe the baby. I can't take this right now. And I was like, I'm going to stay down here because I can't not look at anything else. Um, so it's very weird to be living in a reality in which the Chiefs are the Super Bowl champions, but I'm, I'm very much enjoying it. They have been referred to as the Warriors in the sport of football, the way their style is and their ability to score quick points. You are covering a basketball team and Fred Hoiberg's Huskers who have a little bit of that Warriors mentality. Get the ball up the floor, shoot the three. It, it is an entertaining style. I know it's not winning right now with the group that, that Coach Hoiberg has, but how would you describe to somebody the style of play you viewed this year from Fred Hoiberg's Huskers? Yeah, definitely um, space and pace. I mean, if there's one thing that this team actually is good at, it is you know kind of playing in the style that Fred Hoiberg wants to. You know, they're tanks in the country and average possession length. They're the 31st fastest team in the country, um, and I think that they're the fastest team in the Big Ten. Um, so, you know, in terms of kind of establishing uh, a system or establishing a culture on offense, they're they're definitely doing that. Um, I think that whenever you get a couple guys that are currently sitting out uh, this year, next year, you bring in a couple recruits, some some of that are a little bit bigger. Um, I think that you're just going to be able to plug them in into this system that they've set and, and kind of move from there. I, I've also, the one thing that's so interesting about Fred Hoiberg's offense that you, that you hear a lot from coaches. And if you watch, you can understand of just, you know, when we say space, I mean, they run their offense so much further closer to the half court line than you, than most teams do. And, you know, there's actually times when, um, you know, if there's a dribble handoff or something like that, if you watch Deshaun Burke or, or Jervay Green, who generally they're not running the offense, but once they hand it off, they actually step backwards. Like they're, they're really, really spacing the floor out and it makes it, you know, I think it can tire some teams out because they have to guard, you know, that entire, that entire half court. They can't, they can't just pack it in. So um, if there's one thing that they've done really well, I think it's establishing what they want to do offensively. And it's been kind of inconsistent, but they're doing it about as fast as Fred Hoiberg wants them to. Chris Hetty is with us from the Omaha World Herald. You can read his work online at omaha.com. Saturday night was a, a, a step back for Cam Mack, and I, and I don't know how much of that, Chris, was that he didn't start because he was late for the meeting, but he just didn't seem like the same young guy that we saw for the previous three, four, five games where he really was lighting it up. What would you make of his play Saturday? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, you can decide how you want to view it. One, one way is the kids have been playing amazing. He, 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 you know, his last four games going into that game, uh, he, he scored 18 points a game. He was averaging, you know, six or seven assists. He had made nine of his last 12 threes. Like, he was just playing really well. And so, on one hand, you can say, you know, the kid has been playing really well and you're allowed to have an off night. Um, the other side of that coin, though, is, you know, this is February of his, you know, first season under Fred Hoiberg. He's, he's tasked with trying to be the guy and the man, and you just can't have your – you know, leader on the court being late to meetings because then you're going to get benched. You know, this is what happened. Uh, this happened against Clayton. Uh, this also happened against, I think it was Southern Florida. 
um, in, in the Caymans. And so it, those three games were probably his worst. Um, and, and those were three games that you know, Nebraska lost two of those, and two of those pretty bad. That Creighton loss was pretty bad, and the Penn State loss was probably, you know, they only lost by 12, but there were just points in there where, you know, it definitely, you know, one thing Fred Herbert's always said is his team is at least competing, and there was points in that game when, when they just weren't. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to say, you know, you're, you're a sophomore, but it's your first year and you're allowed to have off nights. And, um, but at the same time, like you can't really afford that this year. Fred Hoiberg said it on, on your show the other night, you know, Nebraska has to play pretty much perfect, uh, to have a chance in these games. And, you know, it's hard to play perfect when, when your star is only playing 22 minutes and clearly isn't there. So I, I'm really, really interested in what he looks like against Iowa and, and Maryland and Wisconsin, these next couple games. Because I think that'll say a lot to me about Cam Mack and, and also about Fred Hoiberg and the team. You know, I think that they actually did see some progress in the five, six game losing streak because um, they actually were competing. You know, they, they were leading Michigan by two with about 14 minutes left. Um, that Penn State game, though, it was just definitely a step back. I agree. So I'm curious if, if the next game they can kind of erase some of those bad vibes and, and at least give Iowa a fight on the road. Chris, Husker fans, or all fans probably, are, are always looking to the future. What's next? What's next year going to be? And I think it really it relates pretty well with Husker basketball because I think we knew this was going to be a tough transition year and maybe year two and three where, is where we're going to see some fruits of this. Do you anticipate any of these big guys maybe redshirting next year with, with Ivan or Kevin or maybe even Akal maybe sitting out a year to try to develop once they get Walker and, and, and Blanton of eligible and able to play? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I actually got that on Twitter today. Um, and I think that it makes sense, you know, to do that if they're able to. So I think in a perfect world, I mean, you talk to the coaches, they'll say this all the time. Ivan should be a junior in high school, right? And so, like, that's a kid that would really benefit from a year off using you know, using that year for skill work, you know, understanding how to lift weights and, and what he needs to do. You know, he's not lifting weights very much, uh, you know, in his high school career. Um it, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Brady Hyman, where Brady Hyman would have really benefited from a redshirt year, but they had to use them last year. They had to use him last year, and, and it just didn't seem like he was quite up to par. I, I do wonder about Kevin Cry. So, so with Ivan, I think it makes sense. With Kevin, I think you've seen enough um, that he's. I think he can give you a lot. I think next year he'll be able to give Nebraska a kind of a spark off of the bench. Like I think that he's somebody who um, gives teams problems because. That he is big enough, you know, he's a little set at six eight that you have to understand that he's gonna be able to pound you down low. But he can also clearly win the break. Like he he I love when Kevin Cross runs the break because I never know what's gonna happen, but he generally, you know, makes the right decision and he can spread the floor and I, and I really like that. I think they'll call um, you know, I think it would benefit him as well to, to redshirt if they're able to, but it's just one of those things where you never really know how the season's gonna go. You never really know, you know, I know that they've got the three they got three sit-out transfers. They got some people coming in from 2020. They they have a lot of, of potential talent, but you also it's just college basketball. You never really know who's going to be on the roster. Um, so I think that yes, all three of them would definitely benefit from it if they're able to actually get that time. And I also think that those are guys who understand that 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 those are things that they need to do. You know, to, to take maybe take a year off, hit the weight room, or, or work on the schoolwork. Um, so I think it'd be it'd be beneficial if they're able to do that. But I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure if they're going to just based on you know, what the roster situation looks like. Visiting again with Chris Hetty, the Omaha World Herald, again online at omaha.com. You've got a piece up now about John Johnson. Who is John Johnson? 
It was great. I actually, when I um, sent in my my budget for the week, and I was like, hey, I've got a story on John Johnson, and my editor emailed me and was like, who is John Johnson? And that's kind of the point. So John, um, he is Bill Moose's second secondhand man. He he was the interim athletic director at, at Washington State. He came over uh, last summer. And uh, he's a guy I got to visit with him in his in his office, actually in the in the conference room uh, up on the third floor. And um, he's someone who is kind of Fred Hoiberg's go-between between, uh, you know, the basketball program and Bill Moose. And so John is somebody who, um, you know, he has a lot of experience in terms of donors and in terms of building buildings. It's kind of what he was mainly doing at, at which, or excuse me, at Washington State. Um, but he has a really good knack, I think, for I mean, he knows not that Nebraska is going to need to hire anybody anytime soon, but he just knows a lot of people in the industry. Him and Bill go way back, and so I think it's it's really beneficial that you know Fred needs something, he can go to John. John understands what's important to Bill and what's not, and they can kind of talk about it there. Um, it was really interesting though because you know Nebraska basketball on its surface, they've got the facilities, they've got the coaches, they have the coach, the, the, the current head coach has the assistant coaches that he wants. The recruiting budget is healthy. You know they they have the private jets that they need to, you know, go recruit places. Um, so it was really interesting talking to him because I think him and Fred Herberg right now are just kind of in this assessment period of, okay, what do, what is, what do we need to have in the future in two, three years to be successful? Because right now it kind of looks like they have everything. Um, but it was just really interesting. I think that the main thing that, that stuck out to me too was, um, you know, Mark Bain was obviously in Nebraska for, for a really long time and, and did a lot of great things, but I, think that it's really interesting to me that John Johnson told me, you know, I'm not going to be in the locker room. Like I'm, I'm going to be, I'm, if they need me, they can call me. If not, you know, whatever he, I know is really close to bill and, and kind of runs the day-to-day operations. Whenever bill is out of town, you know, whenever I was there, bill was at the NCAA meetings. And um, so it's just, it's a really interesting setup just because this is also, you know, kind of what Fred Hoiberg wants too. Like I think Fred understands how to run a program. We, we know that in the history and, and it's interesting because John Johnson I think one of my favorite quotes he, th- he gave me was, you know, Fred has called a timeout before. These guys know what they're doing. I'm here if they need me. And so it's just one of those things where, um, you know, we, a lot of people paid, pay a whole lot of attention to Nebraska administration. Um, and here's a guy who, you know, he, he's married to the women's golf coach and, and, and you know, is, is one of the most important people up in that office. And no one really knew him. Um, so I was glad that he was able to, you know, sit down and kind of chat for a little bit. Yeah, interesting because he, he's not out in front. He's been an AD, which I think certainly he understands what the big chair is like, but he, he knows he's not in the big chair in Nebraska. So interesting piece, good read. I'd encourage our audience to go out and, and read that as well. we got a whole week off here. I mean, this is kind of odd, right? Middle of the basketball season and no game for seven days. Yeah, uh, kind of off. I mean, you're never really off uh, when, when Nebraska sports are going on. But, yeah, it is. It was interesting whenever I was looking at what my schedule was looking like this week. I almost thought that I messed up and that the schedules were messed up because, I mean, it's been Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday for, for a couple weeks now. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a nice, nice little break where you can kind of work on some stuff for the future and, and just kind of, you know, catch your breath a little bit. I do think it comes at a really important time for Nebraska um, because, you know, they got nine games left in the regular season. Then they'll have, you know, one or, or a couple more games that – Indianapolis, and I think this is a point after that Penn State game. I think the way that Fred Hoiberg reacted to it, you know, he was he was obviously pretty frustrated, and I think it's an important moment right now that you figure out who is going to compete. You know, I think Charlie Easley starting over Kim Mack was really interesting because I think, you know, Charlie might not go out there and get you 15 and really fill up the stat sheet, but he's going to play as hard as you want him to. 
He's going to dive on the floor. He's going to do all those things. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they're talking about. Of We want five guys who they might not be the most talented five guys that we have on the roster, but they're the five guys that I want to play with. I want to, I want to coach. And, you know, it's the same thing that we've seen with the football team for a while. You know, Scott Frost and I'm going to go to battle with this guy, with Cam Taylor Britt and, you know, all these guys. I think it's the same thing that's happening right now with Fred Hoiberg. So this week, you know, even though we're not down there and, you know, they're not talking to us. It's a really, I think, important and interesting week in terms of building the culture that Fred Hoiberg wants and, and seeing the reaction of, of from the players of what's going to happen on Saturday. Very good. Chris, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll, uh, we'll catch you in some games here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much, Rick. Tonight, it's the Nebraska Women's Basketball Show right here on the Husker Sports Network. Deep right side of Liley. Deep right corner. Whitey Shalone for three. You! Betcha! Happy assist from Liley. Our weekly look inside Husker Women's Basketball. Quarter shot clock here. Cruz comes around to Kate Keen Hedge. Looks underneath. It's taken away. Whitey's took it away. Ten seconds to go in the quarter. Finds Liley to Sam Hobby. Back to Liley Underneath. Back out to Whitey's. Three ball to end the quarter. You! Huskers take the lead as the buzzer sounds on a Hannah Whitey steal and a Hannah Whitey triple, and we go to quarter number two with the big red ahead by two. With the head coach, Amy Williams. Here's Izzy Bourne just to the left side of the key. Flare pass. Aliley's three. You betcha. Off the assist from Izzy Bourne. Somebody needed to hit a shot, and it was nice. Now here's your host, Matt Coatney. Another chance for us to talk Husker women's basketball with the head coach, Amy Williams, tonight in Hour 2 of Sports Nightly. I'm Matt Coatney. Great having you with us. The phone lines are open. 866-HUSKER-1, 866-487-5371. You know, uh, we were the pregame show for the Super Bowl the other day for a lot of uh, people. The game was tonight. We're kind of the pre-event for the State of the Union address. So uh, don't worry. You won't miss the State of the Union address. You can listen to us. You can ask your questions tonight. 866-HUSKER-1. Amy Williams is sitting across from me. And I, I want to jump right into the show and, and, and get the hard-hitting questions out of the way. Uh, that fans want to know. Uh, Chiefs and 49ers, did you have any kind of a party, which had to be kind of tough after the game because I wasn't really in the mood to celebrate when I got home, so I can only imagine how you felt. But how many people did you have watching the Super Bowl, or did you even watch the Super Bowl on Sunday night? I did watch the Super right. Bowl um, on Sunday, and we just um, – my oldest daughter had a few friends over to watch the game, and then um, my brother and his family uh, came over. So it was just kind of a small little uh, gathering where we could um, kind of keep it pretty low-key. And um, and uh, in my youngest daughter told me that she was cheering for the 49ers, the only one in the house cheering for the 49ers. Oh yeah. I couldn't quite figure out why. She said because she likes numbers. She likes numbers. Oh, oh. 49? Oh, yeah. okay. Yes. I like that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, kids say the darndest things, don't yep. they? Yep. So, and, and again, it, it was just me watching the Super Bowl this year because my kids are kind of older. But back in the day, the Super Bowl party at the Coatney House were uh, Little Smokies, lots of nachos, uh, shrimp had to be part of it. So, What's uh, Williams' household Super Bowl uh, food? Well, because that was um, game day for me and, uh, yeah. you know, shoot around and pregame meal and uh, all the things that happen on a game day, um, dad was kind of in charge. And so Good. that equated to a 
pretty wonderful um, taco nacho bar. Awesome. So it was it was Boyd uh, came up big. He then, came yeah. up big. He's yeah. he's pretty big time. Well, all right. So um, that's the important question. So now we'll roll back into <laughs> basketball conversation. I guess I have to talk about the last two games, two games in which your team had double digit leads in the first half and then uh, didn't get it done. So let's rewind to Ohio State and, and we'll take your calls tonight. 866-HUSKER-1 if you'd like to visit with Coach Williams. Really nice crowd, I thought, uh, for Super Bowl Sunday afternoon at Pinnacle Bank Arena. Beautiful afternoon. And uh, arguably, I thought your team played its best half of the season. Certainly its best first half of the season. 49 points offensively, tied for the most points um, in the first half, tied to what you did against Duke in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. What was working well in the first half against Ohio State? Um, I thought we did a really good job of um, kind of having balanced scoring, being able to get paint touches and have some inside-outside looks um, from just collapsing their defense a little bit. Uh, we played with great pace, and that was important to us, was to get back to, um, you know, playing with pace and making hard cuts and being able to really um, be a little bit harder to guard um, as we kind of felt like in the two previous games that we didn't have very many assists. We were kind of standing around a little bit, just trying to, you know, watch and let somebody go to work uh, one-on-one. And that's not really our style of basketball. And so I thought in the first half, we made a really conscious effort to really um, stress that. And we did a much better job uh, there early in that game. So the 25 points you had in the second quarter, uh, or in the first quarter, the most that Ohio State's given up in the first quarter to anybody this year. The 24 second quarter points, the most Ohio State's given up to any team. Six of ten three-pointers, nine eleven free throws. And to kind of back up what you're talking about, eight of your first nine field goals were assisted. Um, and Sam Hybe had seven of those assists. I really thought that uh, you had talked to me on the pregame show after the Minnesota game and the pregame show of the Ohio State game that you wanted to share the ball more. And it seemed like that message – really probably resonated with Sam quite a bit. But I mean, seven assists is a lot in a, in a half. Yeah, it is. It's it's incredible. And I thought she did a great job of really collapsing the defense and getting herself into the paint. And then that drew um, defenders where she could drop down passes or kick out passes. And so um, uh, she made great reads there in the first half and just really shared the ball well. But it started with her ability to collapse the defense and penetrate. To start the second half, Kevin McGuff made a couple of substitutions. They had uh, Rebecca Mikolashikova, Janiah Crooms, Kirsten Bell on the floor. They took out J.C. Sheldon, Aliyah Patty, and um, Braxton Miller. So the, the first thing I said when I saw that different lineup is Kevin McGuff's trying to get some different energy out here or at least a different look. And you know, from, from your standpoint, you and your coaches on the sideline, when you see – Ohio State kind of changed that up to start the third quarter. What were you thinking they were they were trying to do with that lineup change? Well, I think the one thing is just it brings – it's kind of crazy to say that by bringing in, um, like, crooms, you know, like, but I, I think, you know, she's just um, – she's a very, very good uh, defender and a great yeah. rebounder. Yeah. And so I thought that, you know, maybe something where he's trying to set the tone with um, just – trying to get after it a little bit defensively, put a little more size out on the court and length in their guard positions and um, potentially try to take care of rebounding and um, defending. And then Braxton Miller didn't start the third quarter, but uh, she played 10 minutes and um, had 10 of their 19 points in two threes, 17 of her 
uh, game high points in the second half, and it just seems like once she got on a roll, she kind of was feeling it. She was hard to stop, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, it was. It was. She got uh, free a couple times, and she saw the ball go through the basket, and then she was making some pretty tough contested shots after that. So Ohio State outscored Nebraska 19-10 to 10 in the third. You were held to 1 of 12 shooting, 0 of 7 from beyond the arc. At, at that point, does it kind of become more um, cerebral that, no, we, we keep missing shots here, let's, let's get back into it, let's – you know, you, you hear coaches talk about all the time, you can't just flip the switch on and off. You know, you can't have five bad practices and think you'll be great in the game. Well, is, is it one of those to where when the ball isn't going in the first couple of minutes of a half, you you, you got to gotta watch the ball go through or kind of force it? Or, or what, what are you thinking at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing you can do in those moments is continue to just evaluate, like, are we getting good shots for our team? And if we're getting great shots and working hard and executing and, you know, being hard to defend and, and making, you know, incredibly hard cuts and doing things the right way and making right reads and getting good shots but just not making them, then you're okay with that. But I think, um, you know, what maybe happened a little bit to us in that game is we got some great shots mm -hmm. early that were great shots for us that didn't go in the basket. And then it kind of felt like now we start pressing just a little bit. And, um, and uh, I think that can uh, work against you if you can't just continue to try to focus on let's keep executing and doing what's great for our team to be able to get the shots that we want to get. And, um, you know, we, we got some really good looks. We didn't make them in that third quarter. And unfortunately, it affected our ability to um, stay locked in defensively and continue to rebound. That's Amy Williams. I'm Matt Coatney. 866-HUSKER-1 is the number. 866-487-5371 if you'd like to talk Husker women's basketball tonight. Kind of rewinding to the Ohio State game at Pinnacle Bank Arena Sunday. Fourth quarter wasn't much better. Uh, Nebraska uh, made only three of 16 from the floor. Um, nine points in the fourth quarter. From my end, when it went to overtime, and I know that had to be kind of disappointing when you were ahead by 15 at the half, but I kind of thought, well, at least you got a chance here in overtime. You know, was that kind of the thought on the bench at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think it was. And we'd played in um, a successful overtime situation, so we felt like, you know, okay, we, yeah. we can learn from this and we can really um, find a way to, to come out ahead here. And um, so I think our team was – was feeling, um, you know, a little disappointed about giving up the obviously the 15 point lead, but um, confident that you know we've got a good chance here. We've got another chance here um, to to be able to uh, protect our home court, and and um, you know we had some some really good chances in overtime to you know where we took the lead and we needed to kind of press and and um, just didn't um, come up with the defensive plays in overtime that we needed. It's really strange because Hannah Whitey's hit the three pointer to give give you the lead in overtime and I thought all right that's the that's kind of the spark Nebraska is going to need but um the Buckeyes win at 80 to 74 their 88 field goal attempts were nine more than any other team attempted against the Huskers this season and ended up with an opponent season high 64 rebounds it was a weird stat game because you know when you're missing shots and they're getting rebounds it kind of adds up there um do you just try and put that and the tank could flush it or 
are, are there learning opportunities from that game or, or where, where have you been with the team this week looking yeah back at that I one? think that um you know we felt like there's learning opportunities from this because um it was a game where we felt like in our scout that our best opportunity to win was to be able to mix our defenses a little bit and so we uh, played uh, a couple of different possessions of zone and different kinds of zones in the game and mixed our defenses and um we really felt like at times we were doing a pretty good job in our zone defenses, getting them to take shots that we were willing to um, be okay with, and, but then we didn't box out and rebound. And, and so I think from, from our perspective, we feel like moving forward, um, our team is going to have to really be solid in our man-to-man defense, but know that we need some um, some things to be able to go to, some things to be able to mix things up and, and um, change things up a little bit. And if we're going to do that, we can't um, – play a minute straight of defense because uh, we have a great possession and then don't box out and now we have to play 30 more seconds of defense and um, try to box out again and you know I just think um, you know our ability to finish those possessions whether we're in man or zone with defensive box outs and rebounds is going to be critical. I want to ask you a technique question here because fans sometimes think well why don't they play more zone or why don't they do this or do that but Consistently, every coach I've talked to has said, if, if you primarily play man defense, to go to zone, boxing out is so much more difficult. So wh- why is that? Well, we talked about that quite a bit today, watching film and in practice as a, as a team. And I think um, the reasons are, you know, and, and, you know, Izzy kind of brought this up and she said, you know, it's, it's a little confusing about who specifically I need to go box out. And when you're in man-to-man defense, it's really not tricky. (laughs) You know, you know exactly who you're supposed to box out. And, um, and sometimes there's some defensive rotations where maybe that gets mixed up, but, um, for the most part, it's, you're responsible for boxing out your man. And, um, in zone, um, when you don't have a man, you know, it's kind of an area and then there might be a couple people in that area, or it might be, you know, you know, different things. I think we had several possessions where, we had more than one person committing to the shooter, and then we had too many people committed to the shooter for box outs and not enough people um, committed to away from um, the basketball uh, for box out responsibility. So it's something that we worked hard on um, today in practice and trying to get better at, but just knowing our rotations in our zones so that we don't have two, three people running at the ball when the shot's going up and, and then not enough rebounders. You know, the the second half, you know, not good, obviously. 19 points in the second half against Ohio State, only 22 against Minnesota. And we'll talk about uh, Minnesota here a little bit later in the show. But that's got to have you probably thinking, you know, about your process. I, I don't know. What, coming out of the locker room, have you thought anything? Is anything different or – you know, I, I'm sure you're you're looking for everything that you can think of to try and have your team have a stronger effort after after two straight games. Do those thoughts enter your mind? They don't. They don't enter my mind. And the reason why is because we had many games this year where our process was exactly the right. same as what it's been in our last two ball games, where we've came out and had very strong. Um, third quarters or uh, second halves and you know so when you um, start you know have a couple bad games and a couple things you know I think a lot of people like to start asking questions and stuff but when your process has been uh, very much the same and at times it's worked out great and then at times um, you know there's a 
maybe a little consistent pattern of it not working out. You just can't um, scrap things and, and kind of, I think for us, it's just to um, know and understand that sense of urgency and say, okay, this has been a little bit of a problem for us is coming out strong. And so we need to be even a little bit more focused and, um, and, you know, but not get too uptight about it. Well, let's get the hour underway with the top 10. We think them up. We count them down. It's Top 10 Tuesdays on Sports Nightly. All right, well, we thought the Super Bowl now in the books, another one of the pro franchise's championship games. We thought, let's who hasn't in the, the four professional sports leagues won a title, gotten a ring? That's the big deal with these guys. They won a ring. Uh, it's a pretty impressive list. This is easy to do, right? This is pretty pretty simple yeah pretty easy for me i think there was a there's obviously kind of a running total in your head you know you watch some guys play long enough and um and and a lot of these guys may be defined by not when you know getting one so pretty easy i think this list for me was i think i had seven or eight of them off the top of the dome um already put in place so yeah pretty easy for me austin yeah, I'm with Ben on this one. Pretty darn simple. Uh, enough names. Ranking them was a little harder. My criteria were kind of fluid depending on how much weight I gave to each criteria with each player, but it was a fun one to put together. Lots of big names. Okay, let's get into it. Ben, lead us off. Sure. Uh, my number 10, this is my one um, non-major main ma- major top three cat uh, sport. Uh, this is a guy that I'm homer in it and you know was drafted by my favorite hockey team and at first overall it's got they've gotten so close um to do it um but steven stamkos for me uh with the tampa bay lightning um he's getting up there in age already i think he's pushing 30 so you know you look at uh, you know their inability to win the big one got into the stanley cup a few times but not able to win win the big one and one of the best centers in the NHL. So, stammer for me. So, you start hockey. Starting hockey. Okay. Austin? I start with basketball. This is where I have Vince Carter from the Atlanta Hawks. He's became the first NBA player to play in four different decades uh, when he suited up in early January. He's had a good career. Hasn't ever been a transcendent superstar, at least that I've known. All obviously very good in the you know late 90s, early 2000s. Crazy he's played for this long still without a ring. Uh, but he went to North Carolina, so I'm okay with it personally. I can't believe he's still playing. I mean, this guy's yeah. old in a young man's league, but good good pull there. All right, we're all going different sports to start. My number 10 is Larry Fitzgerald, the longtime wide receiver of the Arizona Cardinals, 11-time Pro Bowler. Uh, he was part of the NFL's 100th anniversary team, but has never won a Super Bowl. Got to the one. The Cardinals got the one, but they got beat. So. Man, can't and, believe. And he may not have many more chances. Can't believe he's that low on your list. I'm interested to see what you got above that. Okay. My number nine, I'm going uh, – he, he was in the same city for a while with the Diamondbacks, but has bounced around now and um, pitched pitched great in the last World Series in Game 7, was pulled out, some would say, a little too early. And then, uh, you know, things kind of went haywire for him there. But I've got Zach Granke at number nine. Um, obviously came up with the Royals and has bounced around a few places – and, you know, landed in Arizona with that great staff. And many thought it was a slam dunk that the Astros were going to win that World Series. Starts two games in the World Series. 
Um, pitches great in game seven, allows just two runs, but gets pulled after the Rendon homer, and the rest is history for Washington. So I've got Zach Granke at number nine. He, he may be the closest I've got on my list to get one, so I've got him at number nine. Cranky, a tough cut for me. I go back to the gridiron for my number nine. I've got Aaron Donald up here. He's just been wrecking worlds from the interior of the Rams defensive line for a while. He just missed out on winning one uh, two Super Bowls ago every, before everything went wrong with the Rams this year. He was in the, a mess of really good defensive linemen, but I picked Aaron Donald just because of how he's kind of transformed the interior of the defensive line, just how dominant he's been, and I waited how close he was, giving him the potential to, to maybe get back there in the future. He certainly has some time left in his clock. I mean, he's not that old of a guy, former Outland Trophy winner, so I got a chance to have dinner with Aaron up in Omaha a couple years ago. Love watching him play. I'm with Ben on, on number nine as far as which sport I'm going baseball. I've got Joey Votto here of the Cincinnati Reds, six-time All-Star. I think he won an MVP. I, maybe. Matt may be wrong. I'm looking up his bio. I, but certainly a lot. But he's been with just some awful Reds teams down through the years. But, man, what a, what a guy. I think he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, so, Joey Votto is my number nine. Joey Votto has um, – and I'm pretty sure – I think the, his MVP came like 10 years ago. Yeah. But um, – He signed know. a 10-year contract for 225, <laughs> like seven years ago. Career batting average of over 300. And Joey Votto will forever have the most amazing baseball stat that I've ever seen um, behind maybe Hack Wilson's 190 RBIs or whatever he had that year. But – he has like, and Austin or Brett, look it up. He has like, one, his pop out rate is next to zero. He he's popped out to the infield like once in his entire career. I mean that's that's, that's insane. What's sick? Like yeah. like, give he does not give away outs. He chokes up. He's he's kind of a funny guy. You know he kind of teases. Yeah, he you know, literally had never popped out to the first baseman in his entire career what? until last season. He's had eight infield pop-ups in ten seasons yeah. in his career. Eight that's, infield pop-ups. That's just ridiculous. So you're okay with my pick of Votto? Yeah. Nine. Okay. Yeah. Very all good. Right. Um, all right. On to my number eight. Don't particularly love this player. I have more so the last couple of years because he's been on my fantasy basketball team. But I've got James Harden here at number eight. In, in you know. You knew that they were going to have a Dickens of a time beating the Warriors. The Rockets were going to. Uh, then they make the trade for Russell Westbrook. Not Wasn't quite sure how this was going to work. I don't know that they're good enough to get there now. Um, Clint Capella's been injured. Harden you know, went through his roughest stretch as a pro last week. Um, and Chris, you know, Chris Paul you know, making the move to, to Oklahoma City to bring in Russell Westbrook. It's, it's an interesting one. And I, I don't know that he gets there. I don't know that... You know, you can put together a team to beat some of these other juggernauts out there, especially with LeBron and AD now in L.A. I don't know that he ever gets one, but um, he will go down as one of the most prolific scorers in NBA history when his no, career is done. No question. Very creative with the ball, no doubt. Oh, to me, all right, number eight uh, is your nine, Greg. I've got Joey Votto here. Okay, very good. All right, my eight, I'm going back to the National Football League. Guy that I'm not a big fan of. But he's put up unbelievable numbers, and that's Phillip Rivers, the quarterback <laughs> of the Chargers. He has been a, a Pro Bowl pick eight times, uh, comeback player of the year in the league in 2013. No longer going to be a Charger. They've cut ties. He'll be somewhere, maybe Miami, something like that this next year. Um, I don't like the way he handles himself on the field, but I'm told he's a really big humanitarian off the field. He's got a huge family. Great numbers. Just never, never won the big one. 
for as okay as I was with your Votto pick, as I'm on the other side with Philip Rivers, <laughs> he, there's not maybe more an undeserving dude of a of a title than Philip well, Rivers. This isn't about deserving. This is about <clears throat> pretty good player. I don't care. Would Keep you, the ring off his fingers. Is he a better quarterback than Eli Manning? Yes. I would say In yes. In his prime? I would say yes. Manning's headed for the Pro Bowl or for the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I mean, I think they're in the same breath. I, w- I haven't dissected Eli's career enough to know one way or the other, but uh, Eli has won a couple of rings. And th- his his last name is Rivers for a reason for all the tears <laughs> that he cries every, every Sunday. Um, okay, moving on. My number seven is one of my favorite players um, in Major League Baseball just because he's hilarious, got a great attitude, just a tremendous player, a great hitter, great defensive third baseman. I've got Adrian Beltre at number seven. I know his career's basically up and retired, but uh, so fresh in my mind that, you know. More, he has retired, hasn't yeah, he? Last year, <laughs> yep. All right. close okay. enough for me. But um, he was a joy to watch. And, his, you know, watching Elvis Andrews tease him all the time and hitting him on the head. And if you ever need some, some killing time in a waiting room or whatever, pull up, uh, you know, teammates messing with Adrian Beltre on YouTube it's, it's some pretty hilarious stuff my all-time favorite Adrian Beltre moment was when he moved the on-deck circle like 20 feet closer to home plate to get a to look at the on-deck batter and he got ejected out of the game so uh, Adrian Beltre for me my number seven Number seven for me, I go to the gridiron here again. I've got J.J. Watt of the Houston Texans, a guy that's been around for a little while, had some all-time great seasons, but he's also been hurt. And this is a guy that I think, barring a miracle, will never get one. You know, with Bill O'Brien as coach and Bill O'Brien as GM, that seems like too big a hill to climb for J.J. Uh, Watt. Pretty good quarterback in Deshaun Watson. He hosted SNL Saturday. You know who they have to be to do that, though, right? Kansas. The Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah very good. All right, my number seven is, has already been mentioned, and that's James Harden. That's where I've got him. Uh, my seven, or excuse me, Austin's seven was my six. I've got J.J. Watt. And the other thing about J.J. that makes him deserving is great humanitarian, you know, donated all that money to the flooding and yeah. um, stands up for bullying. And, you know, he's a extremely, extremely likable guy with everything that he does and all the things that he stands up for. So um, absolutely, uh, absolutely deserving of a ring. Another guy that I find deserving of a ring, Felix Hernandez, pitcher of the Seattle Mariners or someone else here coming up. Only won the Cy Young Award once. He's a two-time ERA title winner. Again, a guy that just seems like a good dude up there in Seattle. The Mariners obviously haven't had any postseason success, haven't seen the postseason in a while. But Felix Hernandez just dominated basically everyone he faced in there for a good five- to seven-year stretch. Another guy I think deserves a ring. I love Felix. I wish I had spot for him on my list, but... You know, Seattle's a place where good baseball goes to die. and <laughs> Now he's a brave. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a tough market to go play. You know, Ichiro was great for so long, and Robinson Cano's kind of stuck there now. There's been a lot of really good players to go through mm-hmm. there, but they just – you, you talk about a franchise that needs a title. Seattle Mariners are one of them. No doubt. All right, my number six has not been mentioned. It's Bryce Harper. Bryce is six-time All-Star, NL, NL MVP. Back in 2015, and obviously one of the highest-paid players in all of sports. So I've got Harper here at six. All right, on to the top five. My number top five has been mentioned but not on our list. It's a player that I talked about just a moment ago, and that's Chris Paul. Um, you know, again, tough tough place to start a career, um, you know, with the, with the Hornets and just 
was stuck there for a long time in New Orleans and, you know, then got bounced around a little bit. One of the best passers, one of the best point guards to ever do it. And, you know, Thunder are having a really good year, but I'm not sure they're, that they're ever going to be championship caliber worthy. So Chris Paul for me at number five. I stick with basketball at number five. This is where I've got James Harden. Okay. My five, Austin just had. I've got King Felix. Nice. My number five. On to the top four has not been mentioned yet. And, and th- these top four, to me, all worthy of number ones. Um, the fact that you have to separate one through four. I wasn't going to pull an Austin and put four, four <laughs> people tied for number one. But if I could, um, I think the- these guys are head and shoulders above everybody else on my list. So my number four, worthy of a higher spot. And, again, it's, it's inconceivable to me that, that, that it's ever going to happen for him. And that's Mike Trout. And, I, and, the, and the bummer about this whole thing is he plays on the West Coast. They're never on national TV. Most people are in bed around here every time the Angels start. That is one baseball career that we're taking for granted that a lot of people aren't going to get a witness how great he is because he, by the time he is done, he will be one of the top five best players to ever play the game. Right. And you know, we're taking that career for granted. And um, it, it's a shame that the Angels have been so terrible because – you know you can't you can't watch him and he's and he's a loyal guy i don't know that he'll ever leave la so it's it's really really too bad he's amazing he's unbelievable he's unbelievable he's he does everything at an elite level he's clearly the best player in the game the best player of the last 10 years no doubt about it and and it's and it's not just home runs or defense or speed he does everything at an elite level yeah i would like to address ben's initial comment uh, about doubling up on uh Spots. I was very close a number of times. I feel <laughs> slightly, slightly ashamed to admit, but I've broken myself of the habit. Attaboy. There are only 10 players on my list. Good, good job. Thank you. I'll pat myself on the back. Do it. Number four, though, I've got Larry Fitzgerald here. Greg, you had him down at number 10. Part of me wants to see him get one. He's just such a good dude, such a great all-time receiver, but it'd also be cool to see him play his whole career in Arizona. <laughs> we would. He did get to a Super Bowl. Yeah. He made a Super Bowl, so he had one crack at it, just couldn't get it. All right, my number four here, I have Russell Westbrook here, nine-time All-Star, MVP of the league in 16-17, and still has some time in the, in the hourglass to go punch that ticket now that he's in Houston, so that's where I've got Russell Westbrook. Russ was on my list, and he was removed for Steven Stamkos, so he was a late, late scratch for okay. me. On to the top three. Um, you know, you look at some of the great careers and, and great players to ever do it that um, and will never, in my opinion, he'll, he'll never get there. But, you know, we'll go down as one of the all-time best to ever do it. And it's, a, it's really a shame the, uh, the amount of bad luck that he's run into. But still making a career out of it. I got Adrian Peterson here at number three. Uh, had a great run with the Vikings, a year with the Saints, a year with the Cardinals, now with the Redskins. Um, in the most clustered backfield in the NFL in Washington, but one of the best that will ever do it at running back, and I don't know that it will ever happen for him. So I've got AD all day here at number three. My number three has been mentioned. Ben, you had him at number five. Chris Paul, currently of the Oklahoma City Thunder, one of the greatest point guards of all time by any metric, regardless of the whining and the snitching. Missed out on a chance at Lob City. Had a great team with the Clippers there for a few years. If he's healthy, maybe the Rockets get past the Warriors and maybe they win a title a couple of years in there. But he's in the, you know, Stockton, Malone, Barkley, Wilkins, Patrick Ewing tier. I've never got a ring for me right now. Okay. My three is Carmelo Anthony, the longtime star, the 10-time NBA All-Star, two-time Olympic gold medalist, 
just was stuck with that Knicks organization <laughs> for a good chunk of his heyday where they just couldn't get out of their own way. Still hanging in the league with Portland, but I don't know that he's ever going to bust through it. But Carmelo won an NCAA title with Bayheim at Syracuse, but Carmelo makes my list at three. That's a guy with such an interesting career. You know, you feel like he wasted his career away in New York, but that's how he wanted it. He, he wanted did. to be the dude to he shoot did. 100 shots. He tried the whole big three thing at other places, got humbled because it didn't work, and nobody wanted him. Right. You know, he considered himself one of the best players in the NBA, but nobody, nobody wanted him right. as a part of their team. Uh, that's, that's saying something about, you know, the way that you play the game, but there's no doubt he was a – a terrific score for a long time. Uh, my number two, mentioned by both of you, Greg at 10, Austin at four. I got Larry Fitz here, tremendous ambassador for the sport. A lot of respect for guys that want to spend their whole career at one team, um, even though it's not going to lead to winning, and Fitzgerald's certainly one of them. And very important to that Arizona Cardinals franchise right now with so much new with Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury. And, you know, he's really the one guy mm-hmm. that's been around long enough to, to lead that team. So I've got Fitz here at number two. Speaking of a guy being around a long time to lead the team, Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers comes in at my number two. He was the best pitcher in baseball for a good five to seven year stretch there. He's been in the postseason consistently. The Dodgers have done a great job of running that NL West, but he's faltered a few times in the postseason, as have his teams, and maybe he could have one had he not run into both the uh, Astros and Red Sox chicanery, but Clayton Kershaw, my number two. I'm with you. I got Kershaw here. It's To me, it was splitting hairs between him and King Felix. Um and, and his falters in the playoffs, maybe I should have penalized him more for that, but he did help a team get there where King Felix just wasn't a part of teams that did. So we couldn't see what King Felix would do in a lot of playoff situations, but I've got Kershaw too. Kershaw is my one. Um, I watch a lot of baseball when I get home in the summer. Usually it's about his games are starting about the time that I'm that I'm watching, and he's a pleasure to watch pitch. He's so dominant in the regular season and just run into some horrible luck in the postseason I can honestly say, you know, objectively, without teams that I root for in any sport, there's not a guy that I want to win a championship more than Clayton Kershaw because, you know, that's the last thing that he needs to be solidified as one of the best to ever do it, Um, and a good guy, too. So Kershaw, for me, easily, easily my number one. Wow, easily. Yep. There's only one guy I'd rather see get a championship than Clayton Kershaw. He plays across the freeway, Mike Trout. I am banging that trash can to let people know Mike Trout is coming. I'm with you. I don't. I think Trout. Trout is a generational player. I think Ben Dryde may end up being one of the top five baseball players of all time. His WAR numbers are just through the charts. All of his numbers. It's just sick how he is, and he's just so underappreciated because he plays on the West Coast and he plays with a team that can never get in the playoffs. It's just terrible. And when they do, they get swept by the Royals. That's yeah, exactly right. So, so Trout, Trout, Kershaw. Yep, all baseball. The only reason I had Kershaw ahead is because he's about done. Trout might, you know, he might end up with the Yankees one year and oh, the Angels back get hot, back his way into you stop one. Stop that! Otani, Otani may come get going. They may, they may they not get done. That dude can't walk up the stairs without getting hurt. <laughs> Should we uh, Twitter poll this? Heck yeah! All right, you guys had no Adrian Peterson on your list. Eh. Oklahoma Sooner. Yep. Boom. You had Philip Rivers on your list. <laughs> that logic is completely void. Philip Rivers is the best quarterback in the NFL, I think, that hasn't won a ring. That should tell you something about him. <laughs> Man. Man, I don't like the guy personally, but his numbers are eye-popping. Unless he plays the Chiefs, and they're pretty terrible, which makes me happy. <laughs> no Indomitian Sue. No. I would have had a month ago. I might have had Luke Keekley on this thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Might have had him on there. The only reason I'm still I'm a little bitter at Luke Keekley forever for taking all the All Pros away from Levante. So he did. Also that. Yeah. All right. 
if what let, just let us know on the other side, Austin, what you come up with on that Twitter poll. But we're we'll looking for it popping up at Husker Sports. When we come back, Adam Rittenberg of ESPN.com will join us. We'll get his take on today's doings in East Lansing with Mark D'Antonio resigning as Michigan State's coach. That's coming up next. We're back on a Tuesday night sports highly here on the Husker Sports Network. The big story of the day happened in East Lansing as longtime Michigan State football coach Mark D'Antonio announced his resignation from the Spartan program after a highly, highly successful career. Adam Rittenberg of ESPN.com joins us now for a little bit of thoughts on this news. How surprising is this, Adam? You know, just the timing surprising, Greg. You never expect a coach to step down at this time of year, one day before the traditional signing date. But you know, those of us who've been following the situation for a while, I don't think are, are overly surprised that 2019 was March last year as head coach at Michigan State. Things had just been trending in this direction for, honestly, a number of years. You could even argue ever since they made the college football playoff, it's been mostly uh, kind of a downward turn. Now, you're right. He had an incredible tenure there, uh, one of the most historically successful coaches in uh, in recent Big Ten history, certainly Michigan State history, their all-time wins leader. But uh, the, the news had turned mostly negative here in the last few years. A lot of people are, are kind of raising their eyebrows that, that he had a clause in his contract, Adam, a couple of weeks ago that kicked in that gave him a big bonus do you get the feeling that this was orchestrated, that, that they were going to let him get through that date to get that and then make the move? Well, yeah, that's certainly a fair point to make, and I haven't spoken to Mark directly about it. You know, I, I, I do think that he you know, wanted to try to continue as long as he could in this role. There's obviously a, a pending a lawsuit filed by his former recruiting director, Curtis Blackwell, with some pretty strong allegations against Mark and the Michigan State program. He had to give a deposition in that case uh, in January. It was originally in December, and they pushed it back to January. Another story came out in the Detroit News about that today. So that's also swirling. It, it, I know that Mark wanted to fight those allegations, didn't want to go uh, quietly. But, you know, certainly that timing you know, with, the, with the retention bonus was always out there. Was he going to stay through that? and then maybe step aside, and, and that's where they're at right now. But, um, you know, again, I, I think overall, uh, you know, his, his uh, you know, I, I think we went into last season thinking if things didn't go well or, or, or get a lot better for Michigan State that it could be his last year. Okay, as soon as something like this breaks, the rumor mill gets cranked up. Everybody's trying to figure out where do they go from here. Pat Narduzzi's name certainly gets some buzz. He was at – uh, with D'Antonio as the defensive coordinator now at Pitt, Luke Fickle's name comes up. Or is that where is that where Sparty starts? Do you think with those two names? Yeah, yeah certainly. As far as guys with ties to Mark D'Antonio, and in Marduzzi's case, direct ties to Michigan State, I think they would uh, certainly speak to both of them. They've both been successful head coaches. Uh, Fickle has won 22 games the last two seasons at Cincinnati, and you know he he was with Mark D'Antonio at Ohio State. Mark D'Antonio came from Cincinnati to Michigan State. Mark D'Antonio is a defensive guy. Luke Fickle, a defensive guy. It's rare, Greg, that you get a candidate with almost the exact same profile as the coach he would be replacing. So he's interesting, as would be Narduzzi. 
But as far, what I know about this surge is I think they're going to aim high. They're going to take swings at some you know, maybe even higher-profile candidates just to see if they're interested. You know, Pat Shermer has been mentioned, the former New York Giants coach, who's now with the, the Broncos. He's got ties to Michigan State. I mentioned Adam Gase even, the New York Jets coach, went to Michigan State, started his career there as a student assistant for Nick Saban. So I think there's all sorts of candidates initially that they'll look at, but it wouldn't be surprising to me at all if it comes down to guys like Luke Fickle and Pat Narduzzi. It's a daunting job, isn't it? I mean, you, you're certainly in that same division with Ohio State, who's got the train really rolling. You know, big Michigan within your state, Penn State certainly has things happening. Uh, how good? I guess how good a job is Michigan State's job in your eyes? Sure. I mean, those are the realities. You have to face those teams every year. But Mark D'Antonio showed, at least early in his tenure, that he could you could beat anybody at Michigan State. You could get to the college football playoff mostly with three- and four-star recruits and player development. I honestly think it was when they got away from that model a little bit and became a little bit more aggressive in recruiting. Uh, I think went after some riskier players, but some higher-profile players in recruiting, that they lost their way a little bit. So I, I think you, know, you, you, you want to come in with the mindset, I think, that Mark had in the first eight or nine years on the job when they were beating Michigan almost every year, when they were beating Urban Meyer, led Ohio State twice, and he only lost two other games in the Big Ten during his tenure. They were beating Penn State. Uh, so I think you want to take that approach, but maybe uh, also have, have a unique uh, outlook for recruiting as well. It's why I think Luke Fickle would be such a great fit, Greg, because he has been an elite-level recruiter before at Ohio State, recruiting in the Midwest. He recruits Pennsylvania. He's recruited Georgia. And so I think he could bring some recruiting juice to Michigan State uh, without compromising you know, some of the things that maybe they did compromise to, 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 to get them off track uh, later in Mark's tenure. So I really, again, think he would be a terrific fit there. Adam Rittenberg is with us from ESPN.com. He covers college football. The other, other thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, Adam, was the story that broke late last week about the transfer rule, that Big Ten ADs have pushed a, a rule – toward the NCAA committee to allow a one-time transfer without having to sit out for a year. The NCAA's tabled that for, for one more year. But the Big Ten AD seem unanimous in the support of this. You talk to coaches an awful lot. Where do they come down on this? Are they in, in favor of what would be a, a pretty groundbreaking rule if it does get implemented at some point in time? Yeah, yeah I think most coaches are, are probably not in favor, but I also know that they're annoyed by the number of transfers. They're annoyed by some of the waiver uh, requests that are granted or not granted and the inconsistency that's involved with that. They're annoyed by the transfer portal. And so the one thing that this proposal would do, if it does uh, once again get on the agenda, because that's not possible at the moment, is it would uh, you know, ma make the process very clear. You can transfer one time, whether it's as an undergraduate or as a graduate in any sport. And so the five sports where you can't do that right now as an undergraduate, that would be you know, wiped away so that every sport would be exactly the same in the NCAA. And you would know as a coach that it's possible that you could have players going out of your program to another program right away and playing or players coming into your program and being able to play right away. So I do think it makes the process a little bit easier in some ways, but I would say the support is certainly stronger among the administrators than it is among the coaches. And it's significant that the Big Ten administrators are unanimous or close to unanimous in supporting this, and they want to know where the other conferences stand. It was, as Gene Smith, the Ohio State AD, told me on Friday, we, you know, this is a call to action. We want to know where the, the other four power conferences stand and, and everybody else. Uh, we're declaring our support for it 
and the coaches are just going to have to live with it if it does get passed. Any early returns on how some of the other conferences do feel about it? Yeah, you know, I, I would imagine that the administrators uh, in other conferences are probably more in line with where the Big Ten folks are. I mean, the, the, the veteran administrators were the ones spearheading uh, this proposal, from what I'm told. You know, people like Gene Smith and Gary Barta from Iowa, uh, long-tenured AD, Barry Alvarez from Wisconsin, who's been the AD for many, many years. And so, you know, again, I haven't spoken to too many ADs in other conferences, but I, I think they're, they're just look at, the, look at the climate right now and the way things are, are, are going and, and the other conversations about other topics um, in terms of enhancing the experience for athletes. I think this would be a positive step in the mind of many administrators, even though I think coaches would have their concerns. Yeah, no doubt. Well, good to catch up. We haven't talked in a couple of weeks, but it certainly wanted to get your opinion on what happened today with, with Mark D'Antonio. Are you working on any projects right now? What's, what's going on in your world? Yeah, well, this was certainly you know changed the day as far as uh, you're looking at looking ahead at potential candidates for Michigan State. But we are going to be taking a look uh, at uh, at actually four programs around college football and what what it will take to restore them to their traditional excellence. And one of them is is actually Nebraska. So Tom Van Heron and I will be doing that over the next few weeks. I have a piece uh, next week that I'm uh, very excited about. Um, I spent some time with Maurice Claret uh, back in, in, in November in Ohio and, and some of the work he's doing. He's really turned his life around. I know he spent some time there in the state of Nebraska. And so excited to share that story and, and some of the work that Maurice is doing with, uh, with people in his community in Youngstown as well as his hope to work with more uh, college athletes in the future. Very good. We'll look forward to that. Adam, we always appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Craig. Appreciate you.